Unix philosophy is a subject that is overly discussed. And in this episode, I'm not going to go to the unoriginal and common root of the... Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to read a list of uh, all the stuff related to the Unix philosophy. In this episode, I'll be revisiting the Unix philosophy in another way. And I hope it will bring a new approach to it. I'm Vinam, and you're listening to The Nixers Podcast. Let's start by asking a question that many forget to ask when describing the Unix philosophy. What is philosophy? Philosophy is a wide subject. It studies so many existential questions, values, reason, mind and language. Philosophy is almost always coined with wisdom, knowledge and the path to learn. It's important to say that philosophy are deeply ingrained in tradition and culture. There are no philosophy that live outside of culture. With that said, what is the Unix philosophy? What is its culture? What wisdom does it teach? Where does it apply? Why is it so vehemently debated? And like all culture, shouldn't it evolve to adapt? And let's start with a disclaimer. It's so frequent to stumble or get caught in an argument and the online realm concerning the Unix philosophy. The internet, like all means of communication, has the drawback of dwindling the content of what someone wants to transmit. The ideas are reduced to cliches, cherry-picking what the person said and strawmanning their views. This is all because the same story has many facets and ways it can be told. Everyone is right in some way and their arguments. It's just a notion of perspectives. Philosophies get to be named philosophies when some people lived and adhered to these principles or norms, and that others want to recreate it for themselves. It's taking a zeitgeist and applying it somewhere else. So let's start with that. The Unix philosophy is not about Unix, it's about the environment and ideologies that revolved around it. It's about taking the ideas the developers had during the development, the environment they had, the approach they took to solve problems, the thing they cared about and applying them somewhere else, keeping the same norms and concepts alive. People like to follow philosophies because of multiple aspects, the social adherence aspect, the consistency aspect, and because it helps in reaching some state of mind that the ones who came up with this philosophy had. The operating system is just the embodiment of what the creator thought was great, their way of life. So who were those developers that uh, we want to meta or telecommunicate with to reach higher grounds? What do they have to say about this philosophy thingy? We're gonna talk about Ken Thompson, Dennis Ritchie, Brian Kernigan, Douglas McElroy, Rob Pike, and I excuse myself for the names I don't have the time to mention. Unix was developed in the 1970s at the Bell Lab Research Center. A research center is like a think tank. Uh, colleagues work together in an open environment that breeds new ideas. And that's the main thing. They want to research something new. People there are paid to be imaginative and go on tangents. Ken Thompson is the one that created the original Unix. 
it was his idea to write a new operating system. A new operating system? Yes, because at the time he was working on a time-sharing operating system called Miltix, and he got sick of the complexity Miltix brought. It was a bold, rebellious and exciting move. He started from scratch with his previous experience as knowledge, probably despising complexity and embracing simplicity and minimalism. The ones that were working on Miltix got curious. The first to stop working on Miltix and help Ken was Dennis Ritchie. Later on joined many others such as Brian Kernigan and Douglas McElroy. They got eliminated by the new philosophy that Ken brought up. Maybe because they were sick of what they had and wanted novelty. They wanted to take back the power. While Miltex was from the beginning a commercial product, Unix was just Ken's side project, used only inside the lab. It was only later that it was commercialized. And here's a quote from Douglas McElroy. Much good came from Unix having been forced to fly under flying under Bell Lab's budgetary radar. Had it been richly endowed, it could not have been percolated so fast and far, and might well have ended up a niche system like, like Miltix. End quote. This is a key point. They wanted to take the power and fun back, saying, this is enough, it's nonsense, way too complex, it's piling up. And Dennis was the sort of evangelist bringing the joy around of Unix. At the time, Unix was written in assembly and that was machine-specific. He took upon himself to write a higher-level language that would simplify everything, from porting the operating system to other architecture, to contributing by modifying the source, to writing system utilities. And Unix was rewritten and the language he built it was rewritten in C. Soon, people were easily able to contribute by building tools for the system. Brian Kernigan joined in the development to write tools, Douglas McElroy too, Rob Pike, amongst many others. The multitasking, multi-user aspect of the system took its meaning. Everyone could access everything, nothing was hidden, everything is clear and understandable, everything is textual. That's a human-like approach to computing. With simplicity in mind, the don't-repeat-yourself mentality kept ringing hard into everyone's head. No one wanted something that was too hard to grasp. Everything should be understandable, self-documented, simplistic. And also, everyone wanted to contribute something unique, something that needed to be done, not a repetition of already written tools. The Unix shell is wonderful for that. It has a built-in scripting ability that lets you write programs using other programs. But it didn't take its full power until Douglas McElroy created the pipe in 1973. The pipe allows to plug programs together to solve more complicated tasks without reinventing the wheel. Programs are plugged using text streams because text is simple. This is a bottom-up collaborative approach. With both of those, the don't repeat yourself and the ability to plug programs together as a premise, we can deduce that it gives rise to an environment where you want to have simple tools that do their job and do them well. This is less overwhelming than giant monolithic softwares those little tools can fit into someone's head. And also because they are small, the developers has the time to write documentation for it. 
they had time for completeness to the level where they could even include bug lists and site manuals. The system was clear, understandable, simple, self-documented, an open environment for development, research and education. And with the entry barrier lifted, playing around with the system was easy and it opened the door to more and more contributions. Partly due to the modularity too, splitting problems that could be done with a large program into multiple cooperative processes, the so-called multiprogramming or multiprocessing. Multiprogramming is a nice name and cooperation is the keyword here. Multiprogramming and cooperation. The programmer that wants to solve a new problem only focuses on plugging them together, focusing on an interface that is clear, transparent and textual. And cooperation goes beyond the programs themselves. And I quote Dennis Ritchie here. What we wanted to preserve was not just a good environment in which to do programming, but the system around which fellowship could form. We knew from experience that the essence of communal computing as supplied by remote access time-shared machines is not just to type programs into a terminal instead of a key punch, but to encourage close communication." End quote. Until 1975, Unix stayed internal to the Bell Lab until a license for the source code was sold to the University of Illinois. Like all softwares at the time, it was distributed with the source code. The appeal took off from this point onward, especially when the code for the TCP/IP developed for Unix was released in the open domain in 1989, and it was released by PSD Berkeley. Worldwide networks of collaborative programming on Unix systems started. Multi-user systems took a whole new meaning. I quote Douglas McElroy, the astonishingly capable little system attracted visitors like flies. Folks immediately saw how they could use it for their own purposes. Because it was cheap, they could convince their management to let them try it. This was the spirit of their time, a rebellious one that wants to avoid complexity, give power to users to change things and build new ones, while at the same time increasing communal development by making the system understandable and human-like emphasizing on minimal and complete tools that do only one thing well. The original Unix was already more or less commercial or more precisely built under a commercial setting and later sold as a commercial product. But the initial conception of it didn't have any commercial purpose, as in it wasn't built to please anyone or make money out of. This was just a collateral thing, and at first it was sold really, really cheap with the source and was released for free for universities. But as with BBSs, everyone started from the 1970s onward to want a piece of the pie. They wanted to make uh, money out of the, the new technologies. Everyone wants to share and make things commercial. So during the late 1970s and early 1980s, commercial startups started taking advantages of the hype to make money. There were, there were companies such as Sequent for Hardwares, HPUS, Solaris, AX and Xenix, amongst others, for closed source operating systems. 
The closed source Unix-like operating system are relatively costly and contain tools that are specific to them, tools that might not be straightforward to use. However, it can be argued that a lot of those closed source operating systems brought new ideas and concepts to the tables. For example, QNX, released in 1982, is a real-time Unix-like operating system. It brought the first commercial microkernel. HPUS in 1984 brought the concept of access control list, bringing access control list to the table. IBM AIX X in 1986 brought the first journaling file system. IRIX in 1988 brought another journaling file system called XFS, and it did improvement to the X11 graphical environment. Overall, you can really say that commercialization and money makes uh, or force people to innovate. That's an incentive after all. And it's not the same setup as the early Unix days. Uh, Unix and that situation is the commercial system. With all those different Unix-like operating systems, there's a need for standards across them, something that makes them coherent with one another. Commercial setups bring those kind of questions. The first of those standards is POSIX, Portable Operating System Interface. It started in 1988, theoretically, but before 1997 there was only scattered standards that we are now calling POSIX. This assured the compatibility between Unix-like operating systems. Yes, because now we had systems that looked like the original Unix, but that were modified from it. The standard wasn't even meant for Unix, but for operating systems compatibility in general. Unix infrastructure was chosen because it was manufacturer neutral. Then in 1984, there was the Open Software Foundation to create open standards to create Unix operating systems. Also, in the same year, 1984, there was the X-Open Company, which was a consortium to promote Unix standards. And in 1996, they emerged to create the Open Group to manage all the standards and certifications around Unix. They hold the Unix trademark and publish the single Unix specification standards. They hold the gun to say if you are Unix or not. And actually, the only systems that are certified single Unix specification and or POSIX are all closed source. The only true Unix are the proprietary ones. X, HPUX, Ensper, KUX, OS X, Solaris, ZOS. And let's conclude on this. This is another taste of the Unix philosophy. A stable, robust operating system that is close to stay at the top of the standard and high quality. This is radically different than the previous one. However, it's part of the Unix history and culture. Culture being part of the philosophy. Those systems are not affordable, not openly doc documented, have a barrier of entry, and are not open sourced. This is not the open environment for development, research, and education that is easy to grasp and cheap, but a solid company product that you can rely on. Now, this depends on your view of the matter. The first Unix was made on under a company as a side project and then commercialized by the company. Commercializations happen all the time everywhere and it brings nice features. 
We also needed standards and they had a greater chance to be written when the people are money-driven. Today, to be certified Unix, you have to pay. Some say that the difference between a certified POSIX system and a POSIX compliant system is the fancy certificate. Some say that those systems don't feel Unixy enough, that they feel stuck and don't give the power to the user. Some say that Unix is social first, that its multi-user purpose must live on and not stay enclosed, that its code sharing ability should too. Then let's tackle that side of the Unix culture and philosophy, the open source movement and its critics and the Unix world. Somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s, the computing world started to go conservative on their source code and openness. Companies wanted to maximize gain and this was the only way. Opposite movements rose up, the free software movement and the open source movement. But what does this have to do with the Unix philosophy? It has to do with the idea of community and contributions which mostly created the Unix in the early days and made developers leave behind Miltics for Unix. It has to do with the entry barrier to the open and simple development environment Unix was supposed to be. It also has to do with the fact that when we hear Unix today, we most of the time think of BSDs and of Linux, and that they are both sides open sourced and aren't certified, neither POSIX nor UNIX, but people say they do feel UNIXy. And most importantly, it has to do with this rebellious mindset that first gave rise to UNIX. The saying that you didn't agree with the direction things are going. Let's discuss the story of BSDs and Linux. In 1975, Ken Thompson, the original Unix creator, gave a visit to the Berkeley University and during his visit introduced some students to Unix by installing version 6 of their on their machines. And Ken was just spreading his message of love for Unix. Unix was distributed to universities for free and with the source. Soon many other universities, as in students, became interested and contributed to their local Berkeley University-based Unix. This was just them adding stuff over the base Ken gave them. It was a university network of open contributions, improvements, and good ideas. Sort of like the academic field with research papers. They were all motivated by the same thing. However, this didn't last long. However, this didn't last long. Their version of Unix incorporated proprietary code from the original Unix, and they soon found themselves subject to a lawsuit. Licenses had become very expensive. Unix was not cheap anymore. It wasn't for anyone to use and contribute to. At the same time, the university had created the TCP IP networking code, and many were asking them to release it outside the AT&T code which was the company holding the Unix licensing and tra trademark at the time. Thus, in June 1989, Berkeley released their networking code under a free license. This is the advent of the close relation between the Internet and Unix, and this was one of the first big rebellious open source move, just like the move Ken made by secretly working on his own operating system. What followed was the logical thing. 
the BSD developers wanted to remove most of the proprietary parts of their system and rewrite them so that they could release them under the same license they used to release the networking code. Soon, an early complete free and open source operating system was available. This source code is the base of the current BSDs, FreeBSD and NetBSD. However, the lawsuit continued, AT&T filled one in 1992 to stop the distribution of that code based out of the Berkeley, until it was proven that it wasn't based on the original Unix. This was a big hit. Development almost stopped for two years and the life of BSD was in question. At this time, the GNU Linux combination was brewing and it gained attraction as a free open source Unix-like operating system. And we're gonna discuss Linux now, but before that, let's review the BSD story. What is there with the Unix philosophy and the BSDs? Most of the story is analogous with the original Unix. What BSD achieved is a superset of a higher vision of what Unix development was supposed to be like. It's natural evolutionary stage, fighting for survival and, and adoption. Even if the code was rewritten, the spirit is still there. However, AT&T had the full right to sue them. They own the code base. That's how companies work, otherwise they don't make money. Now let's go over the Linux story. Linux story is a bit different but also similar in many ways. A university student in Finland named Linus Torvald was sick of not having access to an operating system that was affordable and could run on a cheap machine. He took it upon himself to write one, he tried to simulate as much as possible a Unix environment. And on another side of the planet, a guy named Richard Stallman was rewriting a set of tools so that he could release an open source operating system later on, the GNU project. Those tools were based on the Unix ones, more or less re-implementations, all having one simple function. He also wrote an open source C compiler. Those projects merged and it created the GNU Linux combination. As I said previously, this happened during the cold period of the BSDs and thus was attractive to many, leaving BSDs to move to GNU Linux. This system was truly open source, free and mostly POSIX compliant and had an interface that was more or less like Unix. GNU Linux ascension began and open source took its full meaning with the internet becoming popular. And this became the first and biggest network connected contribution project. Everyone could add their set of small tools to the operating system and fix bugs they found. But what is to take of the Unix philosophy here? BSDs was rewritten based on the original Unix, while Linux was written just with the overall perspective of what Unix is like. This is the utmost example of the Unix simplicity. It's so simple to grasp that someone could rewrite it entirely with uh, just generic notions in mind. The overall concept fits into someone's head, they aren't overwhelming. Now this remains clear that BSDs and Linux aren't the original Unix and this raises many arguments. Are they part of the Unix philosophy if they aren't somehow directly related to the code of the original authors or can the philosophy live outside of the strict code base? Is this Diaspora really a next step of the Unix philosophy, taking the concept from the early days development and applying them in other places? 
One thing that also needs to be mentioned is that commercial Unix operating systems do also release open source projects and tools. They do contribute a lot to communities. But it's not to disagree that the notoriety of Unix wouldn't have been what it is today if it wasn't for this open contribution movement and how it adapted and evolved with trends. some it matters what is the opinion of the original Unix developers about this open source movement that is partly a branch of their own programming environment. However, those developers are human beings. They're a group and each of them has a different opinion on the matter. They are those that don't like how the many contributions have given rise to the complexity they tried to avoid in the first place because they are done by people that don't understand this issue to begin with. Those people are Doug McElroy and Ken Thompson. For example, uh, Ken Thompson finds that I think the open source movement and Linux in, part in particular is laudable. That's a quote from Ken Thompson. And a quote from Doug McElroy. I don't know the counts of Unix and Linux servers. I do know that my heart sinks whenever I look under the hood in Linux. It is has been so overfed by loving hands over 240 system calls, gigabytes of source, a C compiler with a 250-page user manual, etc., etc. And there are others that admire how open source and Linux in particular have grown. For example, there's Dennis Ritchie, Brian Kernigan, and Rob Pike. For example, Rob Pike says that what is the best thing about Unix? The community. What is the worst thing about Unix? That there are so many communities. And Dennis Ritchie says, I think the Linux phenomenon is quite delightful because it draws so strongly on the basis that Unix provided. Linux seems to be among the healthiest of the direct Unix derivative. Though there are also the various BSD systems as well as the more official offerings from the workstation and mainframe manufacturers. This whole Unix-like system versus original Unix derivative versus standardizations like POSIX and Unix versus Unix philosophy, this all this mess makes people argue a lot, a lot, lot. This all has given rise to many arguments and extremists of today. The core of the argument is about the entry barrier. There's a sense of community and peer pressure. People want to be part of a group to blend in. Groups are more coherent and stronger when the entry barrier is higher. This is the equivalent of what happened with the standardization and commercialization of Unix. While the original Unix wanted to make the entry barrier as low as possible, the new extremists want to make it as well, want to make it higher. And this might depend on how you interpret the Unix philosophy. There's a quote that Dennis Ritchie said, Unix is simple, it just takes a genius to understand its simplicity. This was partly ironic, but some take it literally and succumb to elitism. They take the idea of minimalism to a fanatic and extreme way, criticizing many other pieces of software, calling them bloated and creating their own niche. It can be argued that when the number of simple pieces become too large, it is harder to get a general overview of how everything falls into place. And for, and for this reason, it might be counterintuitive. The entry barrier is set higher because you have to learn every single 
pieces to be able to use them and their number is so big that you can't. It's like a literal understanding of a religion. People take the blobs of text and apply them word for word without, without the context. The do one thing and do it well quote, quote from Douglas McElroy, for instance, is often brought up, which was at the time a way to say, don't repeat what others have already done. If you want to build something new, build something that does one thing and one new thing and that does it well so that others will be able to also use it and plug it into their program without having to think twice. However, it's interpreted as split, split your program into extremely small parts that do insignificant tasks. The second argument you find online is about the genetic fallacy, arguing that any system that isn't directly linked to the original Unix could not be or have any of the Unix philosophy in it. Those movements have got something right in some way. No, with their extremism, they were able to extract rules or higher philosophy concepts out of the Unix culture. Adhering to those gives a somewhat Unixy feel to your system or to anything, in fact. The concept are the ones that are the most talked about and that I might not even have to mention in this podcast. Write programs that do one thing and do them well. Write programs to work together. Write programs to handle text streams because that is the universal interface. Write programs with a top-bottom approach. There's the everything is a file concept. There's the modularity and compactness. With that comes the cooperation between processes, piping and the likes. There's the textuality and usual formats used, clear, concise and transparent. And with that comes streaming and favoring text user interface before graphical user interface. And there's the social aspect and code barrier aspect and contribution and the culture in general. And one prevalent writing about the Unix philosophy is Eric Raymond's 17 rules mentioned in his The Art of Unix Programming book. And those rules are the following. Rule of modularity, clarity, composition, separation, simplicity, parsimony, transparency, robustness, representation, least surprise, silence, repair, economy, generation, optimization, diversity, extensibility. And there's also Mike Gencard's from the X11 team that has his own vision of the Unix philosophy. Small is beautiful, make each program do one thing well, build a prototype as soon as possible, choose portability over efficiency, store data in flat text files, use software leverage to your advantage, use shell scripts to increase leverage and portability, avoid captive user interfaces, make every program a filter. As with all philosophy, you can follow extreme strict rules or take the unspoken rituals and way of life behind it. The rootless root, the Unix cones of Master Fu, short stories take this approach. In a series of parables, the, re- the reader slowly understands what Unix is about and how it can live as a true philosophy. Here's a beautiful way to put it. A student said to Master Fu, We are told that the firm called Novel holds true dominion over Unix. 
Master Fu noted. The student continued, yet we are also told that the firm called Open Group also holds the true dominion over Unix. Master Fu noted. How can this be? asked the student. Master Fu replied. Novel I indeed has dominion over the code of Unix, but the code of Unix is not Unix. Open Group indeed has dominion over the name of Unix, but the name of Unix is not Unix. What then is the Unix nature? asked the student. Master Fu replied, not code, not name, not mind, not things, always changing, yet never changing. The Unix nature is simple and empty. Because it is simple and empty, it is more powerful than a typhoon. Moving in accordance with the law of nature, it unfolds inexorably in the minds of programmers, assimilating designs to its own nature. All software that would compete with it must become like it. Empty, empty, profoundly empty, perfectly void, hail. Upon hearing this, the student was enlightened. Wars are useless. It's in fact this clash of schism within the Unix community that makes it so heterogeneous and at the same time homogeneous and coherent with each others. There's a differentiation between a philosophy and a set of strict standards. Remember that philosophy is about culture and not about extremists, even if those extremists are the ones in the front line every single time there's an argument. And this is it about the Unix philosophy. I hope I gave a new approach to this question of what is the Unix philosophy by going through the culture. Let's move to the section where we talk about what we did last week and this week. Last week we talked about default programs, like the question of how does the system know how to open a file? What's the default program that will handle this specific file and how does it know that? If you want to know the answer to this question, go back to last week and listen to the podcast. Now this week, this week, what did I do Unix related? I opened the thread on the forum about uh, inodes and directories and questions such as uh, what would happen if you have a user1 and user2 and user1 is inside a directory and the user2 moves that directory. What happens at all the levels, the inode level and the shell level? And there's a lot of questions that needs to be asked. There's a weird behavior that happens. So, as usual, if you want to contribute, as usual, if you like what you're listening to, you can contribute in multiple ways. The first easy way is to just give your appreciation on IRC or on the forum's extended podcast threads. It uh, gives us a push to know we're going in the right direction. The second way to contribute is by adding some relevant information on those extended threads. A fourth way would be to help me fill the transcript on some episodes that are missing some. And the last way would be to join me on the podcast. And you can do that by asking for a podcast key on IRC or on the forums. And with that key, you can log into the user interface on podcast.nixers.net. And you, on this interface, you set your available time for the next week and then the best time, the best common time is chosen and you can join at that time. And remember that you can find all the episodes on this little short link, podcast.nixers.net slash what, W-H-A-T. 
Or you can check the feed URL that I just mentioned, podcast.nixers.net slash F-E-E-D, podcast.nixers.net slash feed. And this was it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and liked the little overview of the culture of Phoenix. And thank you very, very much for listening. This was Venom for the Nixers Podcast. <laughs>